The National Armaments Consortium is a coalition of industry groups. Its members work on the next generation of ordnance and the energetics that power them. At last week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference, I got an update on a weapons systems summit coming up soon in Huntsville that will combine three parts of the consortium. The Naval Energetics Systems and Technologies, or NEST, the Aviation and Missile Technology Consortium, and the Defense Ordnance Technology Consortium. All three are eligible for the Defense Department's use of other transaction authorities. I spoke with the Vice President for Customer Engagement at the National Armaments Consortium, retired Brigadier General Al Abramson. OTAs is a really great thing. It's a tool that Congress has allowed us, the Department of Defense, to use as a tool to get after the next round of capabilities. And so 1 to 3 November, we're going to have a summit in Huntsville at Warner Vaughan Braun Center. And it's going to be the first time that we bring the consortiums that are part of the National Armaments Consortium, which consists of DOTSI, AMTC, and NEST. DOTSI is out of Picatinny. AMTC is in Huntsville. And uh, NEST is out of Indian Head, the Navy folks. And we're bringing those programs together the first time that we've ever done that. And we're going to brief some government requirements to our members, about 1,000 members, 1,070 members that we have within the National Armaments Consortium. And we're going to brief those government requirements to our members and try to see if we can get some prototypes out to the warfighter as quickly as possible. And what is it that is required here? I mean, energetics, and they're part of a system. They're part of a system. Great question. Whole host of things. And I was talking to somebody earlier about we need to get those, what those requirements will be briefed. So we have all armament systems, if you will, that covers the boundary from sensor to shooter. So we may get a requirement for barrel construction, barrel wear. We're getting more and more of our energetics are wearing out our barrels much more rapidly than they have in the past. Now, does the government at this time want to have a conversation and do a requirement for improvement on our barrel? Remains to be seen, right? So that requirement or that summit is happening one November. We've just got that it's going to be about 50 requirements given. And what we need to do is get those specific requirements out to our members and to the audience so that we can generate some further interest. Right now we have about 400 people that have already signed up for that. We're going to have a really good time with government and industry interacting together, getting after some requirements. Yes, because if you develop a super-duper energetic, as you say, there might be downstream effects that might be not fully understood, such as the physical barrel, the metal wearing out through which the projectile travels. Absolutely. That's the type of thing you have to... So it's really a systems cycle look at the whole issue of of putting something on a target. That's a correct statement. That's a correct statement, yeah. And just out of curiosity, there is a new replacement rifle in the Army for the M4. They have a long, elaborate name for it. Right, right, right. Lord forbid they should call it the M5. Next generation squad weapon. Yes. 6.8 rounds, so they have a new one. Up from 5.6. From 5.6, so there was a study done about five years ago now. 5.56 and 7.62 were the two ones that we were using, and so 6.8, without getting into classification, is really about the sweet spot that provides the lethality that we want our trigger pullers to have as these wars, if you will, and aggressions kind of continue. We want to have that great balance between what that 5.56 and that 7.62 was able to provide our warfighters. Plus, if you can standardize on one size, then you can focus the organic industrial base and the suppliers externally on one thing and ramp up really fast. That's correct. And then if someone reaches in their pocket, they don't have to worry about whether they're getting the 7 or the 5. This way, they'll get the 6.8. But I want to make sure in no way are we moving away from 7.62 
are we moving away from 556? There is a place for those munitions in our formations. It's just that we've got a better round, that 6.8, which is a sweet spot, that will primarily go to those trigger pullers that are at the forward front. and really Cavalry, special those, operations. Ex- and so absolutely, on. absolutely. And what is the energetics development component breakthrough for that round? Right, and so mostly within that round, it really is the propellant, what type of propellant, because that round doesn't explode, if you will, but it's the propellant and the engineering process that puts that munition together. When I first came over to the armaments enterprise, I thought it was going to be a simple scientific project. In my past life, I worked in the Kim Bio Arena, which is really science and biology and all those kinds of things come into bear. But really within the armaments community, it's an engineering fate to make a munition as lethal as it is at the size of which it is. And it's really kind of an engineering change thing that we go through sure. to make it. So, so the propellant is the propellant, but how you put that munition together will ultimately end up in certain types of capabilities that it has. Plus, there's the engineering to get it exactly precisely right times 10 million. Right. And so another thing that I learned during the armaments and ammunition enterprise, precision and accuracy are two different things, right? Because we can be precise, but we want to make sure that we hit it all the time, a particular target. We also want to be accurate. It's hitting exactly where we want to hit. And those two metrics are measured separately because it has to be precise and it also has to be accurate. Right. You don't want to be able to hit consistently the side of a barn. You want to be able to hit consistently the keyhole That's a correct through statement. the, uh, through that the is sliding a correct, barn door. That's a correct statement. Tell us about the Joint Energetics Transition Office. What's going on generally yeah. in energetics? So very recently, the Department of Defense, they had a study of just completing a study, the National Energetics Plan. Today, our armaments and our energetics are really based off of the science that our grandfathers, if you will, were using. And a lot of those technologies are still being used and put into place today. And the Department of Defense said we need to get over the horizon energetics, explosives, capabilities as we develop these new munitions. And so that National Energetics Plan has said and established what they call a Joint Energetics Transition Office that will consolidate the Army, Navy, Air Forces, Marines, energetic requirements under one office and say, I understand what the services requirements are as we build these new energetics. So the Army is not off building one in its silo that doesn't have any use in another services. So this JETO office will be the one to consolidate all of the services requirements as we look at and as we are nested to building over-the-horizon energetics propellant capabilities for our emerging weapon systems. So I think a great opportunity for us to start building what are those munitions, what are those weapon systems that we will need in the United States to continue for us to defend our country moving forward. And when you say over-the-horizon, you mean next-generation technologically, not necessarily firing it so far you can't see it anymore. Both. Both. It's got to start somewhere, right? We've got to have that propellant, that will push it over the horizon, literally, but next generation at what types of technologies, what type of energetics that are in the laboratories today that would provide tenfold more 
energetic power, more propellant power that we are currently putting into our weapon system. So not just a better gunpowder, but maybe something we haven't heard of. That's the correct A hydrogen bullet or Uh, something. Absolutely. Atomic bullet. Atomic bullet. Directed energy, right? All of those kinds of things are now coming into the umbrella of munitions and how do we control that? Because that's kind of over the horizon. We don't see directed energy in squads and Right. Not too much. Proliferated throughout our formations. But one day, that might be one of the ways that we use... Yeah, so in that case, the uh, the energetic would not necessarily have a projectile on the front of it. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. the energy itself you're beaming Absolutely. over there. Absolutely. Well, when you put together a joint office, I mean, both the Army and the Navy, let's say, fire shells yeah. out of things that generally look like they operate by the same mechanism, right. whether it's a ship-mounted gun or a howitzer or something... Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they both have weapons that men and women pull the trigger on. When you have a joint office, how far does that go before it devolves into, well, we need so so, well, we're the Navy, we have to have this, we're the Army, we've got to have that. I mean, is there a lot of commonality in the energetic search among the services? So so there are, right? And so today there is an office that is currently the Department of Defense has delegated those authorities to the Army— and the Army has further delegated those authorities to the Joint Program Executive Office for Armaments and Ammunition at Picatinny Arsenal. And that authority is called the SIM Commission, Single Manager for Conventional Ammunition. And to your point, if those services have issues with those munitions, they now have a single belly button to go to, that SIMCA, Single Manager for Conventional Ammunition, and talk about what those issues are. But now we're looking at it holistically, and that JETO office is going to do that same thing to resolve any problems that any services have. Hopefully, as it stands up, will be the mechanism, the single belly button to resolve those problems. Because ideally, you wouldn't have a Navy version of the 6.8 millimeter round and an right. Army version and so on. Right. Rightfully so, right? So today, in that 5.56 and that 7.62, back to that example, JPO Armaments and Ammunition, as a SIMCA, builds all 5.56s for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. They do about 90% of today's conventional munition. It has to come through the SIMCA, and we're providing the service, or they're providing the services, their munition requirements, as you will. Now, in some areas, the United States is running out of things because of what we've shipped to Ukraine, and Lord knows what Israel situation will produce in terms of demand. To include the counteroffensive in Ukraine. I mean, there was an offensive portion and there's a counteroffensive in all of those mine munitions, if you will. But go ahead. Well, my question is, what does the defense industrial base look like from an energetic standpoint? Are we self-sufficient and do we have capacity? I think one, your question, are we self-sufficient? Yes. Do we have capacity? Clearly, all of these things that you're talking about has been putting a strain, if you will, on the defense industrial base resiliency as it relates to the demand signal for energetics and explosives and propellant. It absolutely is. As part of the National Energetics Plan to look at over-the-horizon capability, it's also looking at improving the defense industrial base resiliency and firming that up and going through the process of facilitating, modernizing, and expanding the capacity of said explosive plants, propellant plants, and having a munitions kind of campus in and around the United States. So there are concerted efforts today that there is an acknowledgement that we are putting a demand and a strain on 
that industrial base, and we're trying to build that back up. But it doesn't take overnight, right? It's not a light switch that we can do it overnight, but we're in the process of getting that resilience. Plus, back. you have to have economic incentive for people to want to set these things up. That, that's a correct statement, right? So oftentimes within the industrial base where there's energetics involved, there's very little commercial application. So it's hard. Natural gas community will want to be involved, right, because they deal with explosives mining community they deal with them so you have to find those commercial entities that may want to kind of get on board and do their own investment to get part of this process to help build up the defense industrial base resiliency and again it's not a light switch it doesn't happen overnight there are some things that have to go into play but we're in the process of building that resiliency back up to help the strain that we're currently putting on the energetics community. And just a quick question. The manufacturer of energetics is not like mixing a box of cake mix. It's pretty high-tech, pretty precise, and takes some real skill, doesn't it? You would be surprised, but one would argue we would offer that a large cake mixing capability is just the same in certain circumstances, in certain steps with building an explosive component it's the same thing. It's still a cake mix. It's still a mixer. It's still an auger that you have to have. So there are some commonalities. And the interesting point to that is we're now bringing those folks into discussions with us and say, well, since you guys are making these big candy things with these big candy machines, how can you apply that for energetics? And understanding where the similarities are is a great thing as we move forward for the next generation energetics. Just make sure you know which one you can light up a cigarette while you're mixing and (laughs) which ones you can't. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson, now with the National Armaments Consortium. We spoke at last week's Association of the U.S. Army Conference. There's more to the interview here in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, Chief People Officer. What does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.